Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 8. We continue on in Matthew's Gospel. We were blessed to go through the Sermon on the Mount, some of the most incredible words ever uttered. They were uttered by our Lord Jesus. Matthew 8. As Jesus switches gear from words to works, mighty words to mighty deeds. That's in chapter 8. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, authoritative, inerrant word. Matthew 8. We're going to read from verses 1 to 17. Hear the word of God to you this very morning. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on them. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. May bless it to our hearts and our lives this very morning. Please be seated. Sorry, God touches my heart when I pray. For some reason, I get all... 
I'm sure that happens to nobody else. All right, my brothers and sisters in Christ, last time we finished up our study on the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, which ended obviously in Matthew 7, we saw very clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ was mighty in word. His words were so mighty that you could see at the end of chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, the crowd said this. The crowd, I mean, the crowd tell, says this about the crowds. The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The thing about the Sermon on the Mount, especially the way it ended, was Jesus said something super profound that would have literally rocked his world in those days. He basically said, You know, the one to whom everybody has to give an account to? You know the God that you Jews claim to worship? You're looking at Him. And someday you're going to have to give an account to me for every word spoken, for every thought thunk (laughs) that you thought, for every deed you've done. At the end, He talks about many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord. That was profound. (laughs) It was huge. And it was authoritative. So his words were mighty. And the words that he taught were amazing. We went through the whole Sermon on the Mount to see how awesome his words are. And I never have understood how people could say, well, he was just a good teacher. (laughs) How can you listen to the Sermon on the Mount where he's claiming authority and he's saying you have to answer to me and say he's a good teacher? Period. No, he hasn't given us that option. He's God who's come to teach. But now what we see is sometimes people can talk a good talk. You with me? Sometimes we're all about this and we're not about this. Well, Jesus, as he comes off the mountainside, is about to back up his words with his actions. He's going to do three incredible things to prove his claims. Because let's be honest, those claims he made were ginormous. They were like atom bombs. And what we're going to see in this text simply is that Jesus, our Messiah and King, backs up his words with his works, soliciting our faith and commitment. In other words, these works are to prove who he is so that we would put our trust in him. He's concerned with your soul. He's concerned that you trust him with your very life and follow him. That's what the gospel is all about. The gospel of Matthew is to prove who he is, the King. And that we would put our trust in him. So let's take a look. He does this. He backs this up and he proves these things to us through three miracles in this particular chapter. And we're going to go through each of the miracles. Obviously not in as great a detail in each one. But I will be mentioning each of them. Let's take a look at the first miracle. The first miracle that Matthew records occurs right after Jesus finished his sermon. Came down from the mountainside. And it's no wonder that crowds followed him because that highlights his sovereign authority. This is no mere teacher. People are following him in flocks and in droves. Now here's what's interesting. How does the king demonstrate his authority and sovereignty? Does he do it through as a, as a big king normally do with a lot of pomp, a lot of circumstance, with a lot of uh, fireworks? I'm the king. No, we see he does it differently. I'm going to read uh, what one commentator 
says. He says this, There is indeed no fanfare about those demonstrations. No braggart showmanship. He did not call down fire from heaven nor offer displays of magical skill. Instead, he looked upon the pains and distress of many of his subjects and moved with compassion, ministered to their needs with quiet but kingly power. Isn't that cool? He just came to visit his subjects and he came to some of the most humble as we're going to see. And he showed who he was by doing deeds of mercy and kindness, although miraculously. Let's take a look at the first one in verses 1 and 2. It says, When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone. Interesting. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now there's a number of notable things about this encounter. First, note the genuine faith of the leper. This is interesting. He falls down and kneels before Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't say if you are able. That's the difference. He knows Jesus is able. He's heard about him. He says, if you're willing. Which, by the way, acknowledges the sovereignty of Jesus. He realized that Jesus has to be willing. He doesn't deserve it. It's not a right. Like in our culture today, we all think we have rights and we deserve this and we deserve that. This man knew. He was standing on the mercy of God alone. Only if Jesus would be willing. Let me just say a couple things about this poor man so you understand. He not only had to be dealing with this debilitating disease, which physically took its toll on him, both emotionally and physically, but there was a bigger thing going on, as many of you in this room probably know. He had to deal with the whole fact of being unclean, according to the ceremonial law of Moses. So that means he was ostracized by his own community. Like with me, I just went to Italy and was received greatly by my Italian relatives, and it was paisan. They fed me till I almost got sick. And that feeling is a strong feeling. It's hard to, that, that, that is like an overwhelming feeling of welcome, right? Well, he had the extreme opposite. He had the feeling of solitude, of people isolating him and keeping him away and people rejecting him and him being outside, not, you know, the whole idea of outside looking in. You got to understand, nobody had probably touched this man in years. But as many of you know, sometimes when you're upset, when you're hurting, someone just touches you. It gives you a feeling of comfort, doesn't it? It gives you a feeling of love. It gives you a feeling like it's going to be okay. This poor man, he didn't have a human touch for a long time. Shut out of fellowship and worship with God's people. He wouldn't, wasn't allowed in the synagogue. Think about that. Even if he deeply desired to worship God with God's people, he was on the outside. There's a bigger thing too here. He doesn't just say, heal me. He says something very interesting. He says, you can make me what? Clean. This man was saying, I can't stand being outside anymore. I want to be received. I want to be a part. 
how lonely he must have been and how he must have longed for a touch from another human being. And what's interesting, how does Jesus respond to this man's faith? This is going to be interesting. He does two things. First, he does the unthinkable for a good Jewish man who's in a right standing with God and with his uh, fellow man and culture. He reaches out his hand and touches the man. Now, we're going to see in a moment, Jesus didn't have to touch him. Jesus didn't have to walk up to him. Jesus could have been as far away. He could have been 4,000 miles away and just said, be clean. He's King Jesus. But he deliberately does something. And I believe this text, Matthew points it out. He touches him. I spoke volumes. By touching this man, Jesus was showing mercy and compassion and love and love that would speak volumes to this man. He met this man right at his point, greatest point of need, which wasn't just physical healing. It was wholeness and welcome back into the community of faith. Then he did something very interesting, and this must have been like music to the leper's ears. I am willing. Be clean. And to show the miraculous nature of this, immediately, (laughs) the white is gone. Your fingers are whole. You know what's so refreshing about this? And this is something, uh, it's kind of touchy for me, but... I want to talk about it anyway. Jesus didn't do this in front of the camera, NBC, because the church was having a bad reputation and he now had to prove that he really is a good person. You follow me? Are you with me? Jesus did this personally and he did it for the man, not to gain a good reputation, but he actually had compassion. He actually cared about the human being, the person who was suffering. See, we can do a lot of good things and we can do things in front of the camera or in, in, in order to make ourselves look good, but that's not why Jesus did this. Sometimes we wonder, and I want to make this point before I jump to the next miracle, we wonder, does God really care? You with me? We wonder, does God, when I suffer, because sometimes he doesn't heal right away, Right? There were a lot of lepers that did end up believing in him that weren't healed right away or at all. But this one little example, this one instance of God sovereignly showing mercy, it shows us something and it's, it's a truth that we could find even in the old covenant. I had a friend of mine who was going through deep suffering and she said to me, do you think God really cares? I hear it all the time. And I told her, I know he cares because his word tells us this. Isaiah 63, 9, speaking of God's old covenant people, it says this. In all their distress, speaking of God, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. That's why I bring this up. God is not an unfeeling despot. You understand? He's not some God who doesn't care. He's so far removed from our pain. But He's a God who's in our pain. He's a God who shares our pain. He's a God who's willing to look. Here's the interesting thing. People say, oh, Jesus broke the ceremonial law by touching the leper. Do you ever think about that? Because we were not allowed, according to the law of Moses, you can't touch a leper. You'll be unclean. 
Now, some people's answers, well, he's the son of God, so he was like immune, so he could just touch him. Do you think that really was what it was? I don't think so. Because I think Matthew tells us later on. He fulfilled Isaiah 53 that says what? He carried, our, he took upon himself our afflictions. You understand? He was about to go to the cross to be condemned for our sin. And in touching this man, he, as it were, became the leper. You with me? He was willing to be classed as unclean even though he never broke the law. He associated intimately with this man. And he's so respectful of the law, obviously he is the one who gave the law in a sense, in a real sense, that he tells him, don't go tell anybody yet, go back, offer the the right uh, sacrifices as a testimony to the priest. And I believe so, so that the priest could then declare clearly that this man can now be in fellowship. You follow me? So it's official. So the priest would have to, and also it would be a testimony to the priest that Jesus healed him. And the priest would have to do something with that one way or the other, trust or not, or reject. This leper wasn't the only one who felt the personal touch of Jesus. Let's look at the next quick miracle here. Or let's look at it quickly. It's not quick, but verses 5 to 13 we have a centurion's request to heal his servant. And as we're going to see, we saw from the reading, this Roman official obviously cares deeply for his servant, deeply enough that he asks Jesus for help. He explains his servant's condition this way. He says, My servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. And then Jesus' response is interesting. I love it. It's like Jesus is baiting him a little bit. All right, I'll go heal him. And then this gives the man an opportunity to express the faith of his heart. Let's look at verse 8 again. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. There's only a few instances in all four Gospels where it says that the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, was amazed. Now, what in the world would make Jesus Christ amazed? How could you surprise Jesus? How could you make him astonished? There were two things in all the Gospels. One was the unbelief of the people that should have believed. There's times in the Gospels where it says he was amazed at Israel's unbelief. They of all people saw the sea part. They saw bread come from heaven. They saw all these incredible things. And when they had a lack of faith, that actually shocked Jesus. But the other thing that amazed Jesus was the faith that shouldn't have been there. It was when Gentiles, who weren't even a part of the covenant community of faith, exercised extreme, radical, life-saving faith in the Son of God. And you know, this touched me because I actually started looking at this passage when I was in the airport leaving for Italy. And I literally got choked up because that's my background, Roman. And I know that somewhere back in my lineage, there was a Garofolo walking around Rome somewhere. I don't know what he was doing, but... And so it was interesting to me just to think that God incorporated us pagans. 
You follow me? Gentiles. People that were not a part of the covenant. Now, by faith in the Son of God, we were equal with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Because Jesus is going to talk about that in a moment. So you see, I'm not just going on a tangent. Here we had a pagan, a Gentile, who had no connection to King Jesus. And here he recognizes Jesus' sovereignty, his authority, and that there is something very special about Jesus. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How to make friends and influence people? No. (laughs) I don't think Jesus would have wrote that book. In this passage, Jesus Jesus takes the opportunity that this Gentile's amazing faith affords to remind his would-be followers that there is a heaven to win and there is a hell to avoid. And the litmus test, the real divide, the real difference is his person. It's him. It's your connection or non-connection to him. That will determine literally your destiny. And the good news is, it doesn't matter if you're Chinese, it doesn't matter if you're Italian, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, it doesn't matter if you're American. Do you have faith in the Son of God or do you not? And that's what we see here in this text. Jesus is saying there will be many Arabs, Africans, Asians, Irish, Greeks, and Romans that will be at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there will be many, unfortunately, who are physically of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord for one reason. They rejected the Son of God. It's a warning. And it also gives us the impetus to tell, continue to present the claims of Christ to people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. What's interesting here too is there's a good balancing effect from Jesus' words earlier. Remember when he said, narrow is the gate that leads to life and narrow is the road. Remember, few there be that find it. Well, the encouraging balance to this is there will be many from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will be at the feast. And the cool thing is it's like the tide of time as as time goes by, more and more from every tribe and nation, they build, they build, they build until someday it'll be innumerable. And that's the good news. God promised Abraham there be his, that his people would be more than the stars in the sky, more than the grains of sand. The old hymn puts it this way, Jesus who died will be satisfied. He didn't die for naught. Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. 
Jesus makes the difference. See, Spurgeon once said this, the great Baptist preacher. Too bad Mike's not here. You better listen to this on uh, the internet. This is what C.H. Spurgeon said. I would propose that the, the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. That's what I want Mike to hear. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. That's what I guess I should hear. But if I am asked what is my creed, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. My venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, has left a heritage admirable and excellent in its way, but the legacy to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Jesus Christ, who is the arm and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth. Here's the awesome thing. The Roman centurion knew just a tiny fraction of what you know about Jesus. You with me? And yet he put his full faith in someone he knew barely anything about. And yet we have now such a great wealth of information about who Jesus really is, what he's done. Our faith should be greater than the centurions, not lesser. Because we know who he is and what he's done. And we've seen it in our own lives. And what I, why I quote Spurgeon is because we are all about mercy ministry, we're all about racial reconciliation, but ultimately we're all about those things, hopefully, because we're all about Jesus. Because He's about those things. Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And His servant was healed that very hour. May it be done to you according to your faith. Last miracle that I want to point out that where Jesus backed up his teaching with his actions. Look at verses 14 and 15. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. First thing I want to say is, I think you might all know where I'm going with this. Peter was married. There's tradition out there that says he was the first pope. Well, he had a wife. And we see right in this text, his mother-in-law was sick. And so Jesus immediately heals her of her fever. So she's able to get up and she's able to wait on the guests. And that was just one um, little proof of who he is but then look at verses 16 real quick and 17 when evening came many who were demon possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet isaiah he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases in other words jesus associated with his people the king left his throne to live among the people and to be and he didn't hang out with the rich mostly he didn't hang out in uh, places that we would expect royalty he hung out with the people he hung out with the sick the lame the weak one more quote for you according to bishop simpson it is said that when the story of west india slavery was told to the moravians they were a christian group 
And it was stated that it was impossible to reach the slave population because they were so separated from the ruling classes. Listen to this. Two Moravian missionaries offered themselves and said, we will go and be slaves on the plantations and work and toil under the lash to get right beside the poor slaves and instruct them. They left their homes and went to the West Indies as slaves and lived in the company of slaves to get close to the heart of slaves. And the slaves heard them because they had humbled themselves to their condition. This was awesome. It was glorious. But Jesus' actions were more glorious. Because here the King of kings and the Lord of lords left his Father's throne to become one of us. And he came to take on our infirmities. And most important, as the whole Gospel of Matthew points out, to take upon himself our sins. He took on the form of a slave, Paul tells us. And he was obedient to the point of death. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The passage, if it shows us anything that we've seen in Matthew 8, it shows us that King Jesus solicits our faith, not only through his mighty words, but his mighty works on behalf of all who would put their trust in him. And that's where the text leaves us, I believe, here at New City Fellowship. Will we trust him when we can't see? When we see that our servant is sick, lying, ready to die, will we believe? When it looks like our efforts aren't availing, will we trust King Jesus, who will be satisfied, who wants to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and who will? Just will we have the privilege of being the vessels he uses? Will we have faith like who we've seen in this text? Our destiny, not just the future of New City, our destiny depends on will you trust Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the difference between heaven and hell. That you are all the difference between whether we will be with God for all eternity and eternal bliss or whether we will be facing judgment for our own sins without hope. Father, if you, Lord Jesus, if you are willing, you can make us clean. We thank you that you've said in your own word that he who comes to me I will by no means cast out. We thank you that you are willing for all those, whether they're a Roman centurion, a Jewish leper, Father, a homemaker who likes to serve her guests. We know you are more than sufficient. So Jesus, we ask that you would renew our hearts, renew our purpose, renew our focus for living, which is for you and not our own selfish purposes. And we do pray for this little work, Lord. We commit it to you. We commit hope for Atlantic City to you. We commit the many people that have been touched through it who may not even come to worship, but who you want to change. Lord, we ask that you'd give us boldness and willingness to risk everything we built in terms of bridges to tell them the truth about you 
about their need for you and about the great news of the King who became one of us to take upon Himself the judgment our sins deserve. Oh, Jesus, we praise You, we worship You, we honor You. And we pray Your will be done in saving many souls here, Lord. We ask it in Your name, Jesus. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. New City's Sunday Sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New City's Sunday Sermon.